You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we look at the biblical text in a three-step process. We read it, we think about it, then we apply it to our lives today. I'm Andrew Kingsley, and with me is Drew Kaiser, and today we are in our um, series on the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we are going to start in chapter 2 today, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And this little passage of scripture contains uh, what a lot of commentators call one of the most significant passages in the entire New Testament. We're going to see that in verses 5 through 11, um, where we have a, a beautiful passage on Christ and who he is and what he's done. But we're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And if you remember from the end of chapter 1 in our last episode on Philippians, we saw that Paul kind of turned the lens off of himself and onto the Philippians. You might remember back in verse 27 of chapter 1, that's where he starts. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so now he's kind of looking at the Philippians. And keep in mind, Paul did not write this letter with chapter divisions and with verses. So you can kind of see how the thoughts flow naturally uh, from the end of what we know as chapter 1 to the start of chapter 2. So he's telling him to live in a manner worthy um, of the gospel of Christ. And now he's saying, if there is any of this, um, then you can complete my joy. And that is the focus, really, I believe, of these first 11 verses, is Paul is telling them how they can complete his joy. We know Paul's already happy with them. Um, and there are three things he talks to them here about completing his joy. And the main thing is unity. He wants them to be unified, be of the same mind. Uh, There are three ways he wants them to be united. The first way is in mind. You can see that in verse 2. And this is the idea of he wants them to be thinking along the same lines. He wants them to have basically the same outlook on things, uh, to be coming from the same place. He repeats it three times in verse 2. He words it different ways. uh, Be of the same mind full accord, and of one mind. So unity is a big deal. This is a lot deeper than just a superficial similarity. You don't want them just to look the same on the outside. He wants them to think the same. And we'll see how he wants them to think in verses 5 through 11. So he wants them united in mind. He wants them also to have a unity of love. He wants them to have the same love. And you can see that in verse 2. And obviously we're going to be referring here to the love of Christ. Uh, And then finally, he wants them to be united in humility. You can see in verses 3 to 4, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition. In verse 4, he says, Don't look only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And humility is one of the key components in the love of Christ, as the next six or seven verses are going to explain. So Paul sets up this idea of unity, and now as we read the next few verses, Paul is going to give them the perfect example of humility. He's going to show them what it really means to be humble and how to be united in humility. 
This is what he says starting in verse 5, and this opens up uh, what's been coined as the Christ hymn. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So trying in an effort to show the Philippians what it means to be humble, the real meaning of humility, uh, he talks them to them about being united in the mind of Christ there in chapter 2 and verse 5. He talks about how Christ was in the form of God, and we'll talk about what that means in our next section. Uh, and then he says, even though he's in the form of God, he humbled himself, he emptied himself. Well, what exactly did he empty himself of? There's a lot of debate about that. A lot of people have a lot of different opinions. We'll cover some of those in the next section. And then finally, you can see uh, at the end of this section, verses 9 through 11, that God exalts him. So kind of the idea here, you see God exalts the humble. Christ humbled himself, so God exalted him. And that's an outline of the, of the passage for today. Um, good job. I I got a question. How does how does verse one fit into all of this? I've just I was looking at all that. You know, we have verses one through four as completing Paul's joy through unity of mind, love, and humility, and then you have this example of Christ in verses of five through eleven. How does all of that fit in with verse one? Yeah. I... I just looked right over my stuff on verse 1. Paul, he introduces it saying, and you can see, uh, depending on what translation you're, that you use, the first word of verse 1 is going to be so or therefore. Um, it is so in the ESV. So he's kind of, he's moving forward from the thought he completed in chapter 1. Um, so he's saying, you know, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how he kind of wraps up chapter 1. Now he's saying, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and this if statement here, if implies a condition, which is just simply like, if I do this, then this. You know, if, but he's he's really convicted about this if. I mean, it's oh yeah, it's rhetorical because everybody knows that these things are in Christ. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's um. Uh, the if you're reading the NCV, it says this: Does your life in Christ give you strength? Does His love comfort you? Do we share together in spirit? Do you have mercy and kindness? And then obviously the answer is going to be yes. Uh, what we're looking at here is Paul's not giving them a way out to where some people that are maybe very analytically minded might read it. Well, what if there is no encouragement in Christ? What if there is no comfort in love? What if there is no participation in the Spirit or any affection and sympathy? Then we don't have to complete Paul's joy. Then we don't have to do all this. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, it's just, I mean, it's really easy to understand. It's like me saying, hey, if the sun comes up tomorrow, you need to do what's right tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, it's, yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's pretty effective. And it's kind of like, um, you know, if if there are these things in Christ, then keep reading. 
Yeah. But but if there isn't, there's no point in you reading any further. Yeah. You know, that's another way of looking at it. And that's how it gets into the meat of, you know, what you presented in the outline about if... So basically, if these blessings are in Christ, and that's how I read these, because the phrase in Christ is there in verse 1. So if you have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation or fellowship in the Spirit, affection and sympathy those things are in Christ, then keep reading. This is, the, you should complete my joy by doing these things. Yeah. And that kind of softens, um, you know, it, it, you know, with Paul saying, complete my joy, if you don't have verse 1, it almost sounds like he's basing all this on his preferences. Mm-hmm. Hey, get together on these things and quit fussing and fighting so that I can be happy. So mm-hmm. I'm not miserable any longer because you people are bothering me. But mm-hmm. he's talking about blessings in Christ and responding to these great things in Christ. That's what unity is. So he's saying, you know, if if there isn't these things and you have reason to be miserable, fine. You know, fight and have strife. But if there is encouragement, fellowship, affection, sympathy, comfort, if those things are in Christ, and they are, yeah. then Complete my joy, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Make me happy and do these things, not because of me, but in response to all of these great things that you have in Christ. You don't have a reason to to be full of strife. I think it's kind of how verse one and, like you said, the end of chapter one mm-hmm. fits in to those things. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I think you could, if you wanted to, kind of, you know, in your head at the end of verse one, just add. And there is, you know, kind yeah. of like you said. So if there's any of this, yeah. if there's any of this, and there is, then complete my joy. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's really the the force of the way that Paul gets into this discussion on unity. And you can really see how Paul's stuff isn't just random stuff off the top of his head. A lot of Paul's, well, pretty much all of Paul's letters are very linear. He starts mm-hmm. somewhere and he builds and builds and builds. And so I think that'll pretty much do it uh, for our outline. Yeah, I'm ready to wrap this up because I'm really excited to get into the think today. We probably got more to think about than usual, so we'll take a break. We'll come back. We're gonna get. Like I said, I've been excited about getting into this since we started the book of Philippians because Philippians, particularly Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 are really deep theological concepts about Jesus. And uh, you've got a lot, you can learn a lot about the doctrine of Jesus Christ in these few verses. These are verses that have been debated that have been challenged, that have been worked through for centuries, and people are still talking about what they mean. Um, did did you mention, I think you mentioned that uh, Paul may have picked this up as a hymn yeah. that was sung in the early church. Uh, we don't have any evidence of that except for the internal evidence. And when we use the term internal evidence, 
We're talking about the evidence that we can just see from reading the text. Scholars will look at things like, you know, the little word who that begins verse 6. They say that's a trigger to, uh, we're about to get into a Christ hymn. They've seen that in a few other examples, and I didn't look up what the other examples might be. I apologize, I should have that. But um, also, another thing is the structure of it. There's a lot of parallelism, which is a a form of poetry used a lot in Hebrew poetry, where you see that. And you don't see that so much in the English translation as you do in the Greek. But I, I, I'm not really wanting to get into those matters, whether or not this was a Christian hymn. I'm fine with it being a Christian hymn or an original work of Paul. Well, whatever the case is, inspiration guided Paul to use these words in the context of Philippians chapter 2. What really intrigues me is what this these verses say about Jesus Christ. So I'm going to start with the big one for me, and then if you want to, Andrew, go to the next one, there's there's like okay. a number of points that we're going to hit here. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to start in verse 6, where we have the word form, form of God. And it says in the English the Standard Version, that Jesus was in the form of God. That is, before he was born uh, to Mary. He was in the form of God. As I understand it, there are two basic Greek words used in the New Testament for form. Morphe and schema. Did I say that right? Yeah, morphe and schema. And morphe has to do with the nature or the substance of of the thing, the actual thing, the essence that doesn't change of the thing. Mm -hmm. Schema is more like the external appearance or the external form of something. And it can change. And uh, one analogy that I heard is a morphe would be like human being. Schema would be infant, child, adolescent, young adult, middle adult. Hmm. So, like that, I thought that really distinguished the two terms really well. Morphe, human being, schema, all the stages of growth and development, and age, aging with the human being. That the schema changes, the morphe doesn't change. So, how does that help us understand Jesus Christ? What it says about Jesus is that he is essentially God. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Godhead, meaning he is God. And this, you know, goes in well with John's prologue to his gospel account, John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what's being said here. It's being declared that Jesus is God. I'm going to save some other texts for that, for a debate over um, probably the next thing that you want to get into, but... I'm going to go let you, you know, go to the next thing you want to go to. Unless you okay. want to say more about, I may have left some things well, out about the form of God. I don't want to, were you about to use Colossians 1, 15 through well, That's what I was thinking about, yeah. Were you about to use it? Okay, well. No, I wasn't, no. Okay. Go ahead. Well, just kind of here to, to bolster this claim that Jesus is God. And this is one of the biggest, or I guess one of the most difficult things for us to understand that Jesus is 100% God. Because when we're talking about being the form of God, this is you can know that Jesus is 100% God. 
Mm-hmm. But we're going to read something in verse eight that's yeah. going to act, uh, that's going to confuse seven. us. Verse seven, or yeah, verse yeah. seven, that's going to confuse us. But right here is one hundred percent God. You can look at Colossians one, uh, starting in verse fifteen, talking about Christ here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, all of the fullness of God yeah. is in Jesus. And let me just add, since you're in Colossians, I add to that, Colossians 2.9, in him the whole fullness of deity, King James says Godhead, dwells yeah. bodily. So, the, the fullness oh, wow. is a key word of the book of Colossians. In him, in Christ, the whole fullness, the completeness of God dwells bodily. That's the same thing he's saying in Colossians 1.15 and following, yeah. and uh, in Philippians. Now, a lot of people are not going to have a problem with that. Some some would have a problem with that. You know, you've got uh, Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses that say Jesus is a God, but he's not the God. Um, but we... You know, can set that aside. If you believe in the scriptures, there's no way you can support that idea. But this takes us to um, verse 7. Yeah. Because some people say, okay, he was God before he was born of Mary. And that's what Philippians 2 6 is talking about. And he's God now that he's back in heaven. That's what Colossians 1 15 following, Colossians 2 9 are about. Mm-hmm. But some would argue he wasn't God when he was walking around and looking like a man on earth. And they're yeah. going to try to use the language of Paul in this section to argue that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so right. we, we need to get into that, dig around in that a little bit. Yeah, there are some theories based off of really, I guess, the end of verse 6. And verse, you know, verse 7 through 8. Because at the end of verse 6, it says, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Some people think that that means, well, he didn't think that he could be equal to God. But we just got through reading. He's in the form of God. And we've looked at those passages from Colossians. We know that he is equal with God. He is. But... Um, the idea behind this Greek word here for a thing to be grasped, uh, this means really more of something to really hold on to. Um, something to, uh, let me see here. Uh, it's derived from a word which means to seize or to take away by force, to snatch away. And uh, the idea here is really that Jesus did not tightly grasp onto equality with God, and that's, um, J.B. Lightfoot agrees with that. He thinks this is the most, um, I guess, the most appropriate interpretation of this translation of that passage, and also with some stuff from the early Greek fathers um, in the church. So the question here is, 
In verse 7 it says, He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And the idea, the question I guess, the big question is, what did he empty himself of? What did, yeah. he, what did he get rid of? The the word there, the Greek word, for those who care, is related to the word kenosis. And I just throw that out because there was something that came out in the 1800s called the kenosis theory um, mm. by a Gottfried... God, I wrote his name down, and now I can't read my handwriting. Gottfried Thomasons or something like that. He was a German. And... Uh, he he argued that this meant that when he became 100% human, he was no longer 100% God. He emptied himself of his divinity, the, mm-hmm. that form that we're talking about. Yeah. He emptied himself of it and was human without being God. And uh, that, you know, that's what we need to talk about. Is that what this is saying? Because... Like you just pointed out, it does say that he emptied himself of something. Yeah. And uh, kenosis is translated made himself nothing in my translation. King James is made himself of no reputation. Yeah. Um, uh, New American Standard has laid aside his privileges. That's, um, that's the New American Standard? Yeah. Laid aside his privileges? NASB, New American Standard Bible, I guess. Laid aside aside his privileges. Lightfoot has gotten... I'm looking at uh, the Truth For Today commentary uh, written by Roper um, on Philippians. But he's got here that Lightfoot wrote that Christ stripped himself of the glories and the prerogatives of deity. And so I think really the explanation to what exactly did he empty himself of, he did not get rid of his... Um, of his godliness. You know, it's not like he decided, or when he became a man, he had to say, well, I can't be God anymore. Um, You know, this isn't something I can do. Um, But, I think the, if you want to understand what exactly did he do, you follow the next verse and kind of see the train of thought, what he did. Well, before we do that, you know, we read some passages about Jesus' divinity but they all applied to either before he came to earth or after he was ascended into heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, this passage talks about the form of God was before he came to earth. And then so the ones in Colossians were present day, now. Yeah. So you go to some other passages, though, that Jesus' own words. And there's a lot of examples that, that he believed himself to be divine Oh, yeah. While he was walking around on earth. And I think that seals the deal right there. You know, the most familiar ones from John eight fifty eight, Or maybe not the most familiar one, but my favorite, because there's no arguing against what he's saying there. Yeah, He's arguing with the Pharisees, and, and they're talking about Abraham and how Abraham's so much better than he is. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And, you know, the name of God, Yahweh, is related to the verb to be in Hebrew. I am, I exist. Uh, You know, when um, Moses encountered God at the burning bush and asked who he was, God said, I am who I am. Jesus is using that name there. It's grammatically, you know, wrong, unless you're thinking of it as a name. 
So mm-hmm. before before Abraham was, I am. I existed forever. I am God. Yeah. And then you put with that the seven I am statements in the book of John. That's mm-hmm. not coincidental that those all seven of those statements start with the name of God. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the sheep. I am the, the vine, etc. So you've got that. And then you've got the name Emmanuel given by Gabriel to Joseph and Mary uh, even before Jesus was born, you're going to have a son. His yeah. name shall be called Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. What does Emmanuel mean? My Lord... No, I'm sorry. I've got ahead of myself. It means God with us. Yeah. So if he he's either God with us or he's not. And that name was for him in the flesh. Not, not before flesh, not after flesh, but in the flesh. Yeah. You shall have a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then what my brain was going to, and I got ahead of myself a minute ago, was Thomas in John 20, mm-hmm. 28 and 29. You know, um, Jesus gives him an opportunity to feel the nail prints in his hands inside. Thomas falls at his knees, and what does he say? My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, this blasphemy. You know, stop yeah. calling me God. I am not God. But he accepts his worship. Mm-hmm. And then there are other times where he forgives sin. You know, what about the... I'm sorry, I'm kind of throwing all these out all at once, but I'm trying to build a case that there is no question whatsoever that Jesus believed himself to be God while he was in the flesh. Yeah. It reminds me of Mark 2, where there's a, a man that's lowered through the roof. He's a paralytic. And Jesus sees the faith of the men that lower lowers him down, and he says to the sick man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees say, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Yeah. And that was the very point. They're, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. And that's exactly the subtle message that Jesus was putting across to them, is that I am God. So, I, you know, there are several yeah. examples... Not before his life on earth or after his life on earth. We got a lot of those. But during, so we can eliminate the idea that he emptied himself, meant he emptied himself of his divinity. Now, this German guy, uh, Thomasons, he said that's his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, that, you know, his essential nature is God. That's what he emptied himself of. But we, we disagree with that. You know, that's. Yeah. That's heresy. That's not even Christian teaching. Yeah, I think, and I think if that's if that's your belief, then you lose a lot of the weight of what Jesus did. Um, Roper's got in his commentary: we can never comprehend the unselfishness of the Lord until we understand just what He gave up. And I don't know, He didn't empty Himself of everything that made Him God. You know, we sing the song all the time: He could have called ten thousand angels. To destroy the world and save him free, but he didn't. He could have. He still had the access, the form, if you want to call it that, yeah. to do all those things. If he didn't want to die on the cross, he wouldn't have. It's not like he was a powerless man that couldn't do anything about what was going on around him. Now, if you put any one of us in that situation and we get put on a cross or, you know, we're in in front of a firing squad or whatever, we don't have the option 
to call on, we cannot command the creation or command the angels to stop it right then and there. We're not in, we're not God. We don't run everything. Jesus did. I mean, that's part of what made his sacrifice so great. Mm-hmm. Is that and that and I think that's why when you keep reading, it sort of explains what Paul means when he says he emptied himself. He says he emptied himself, um, taking by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself how of what? Well, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, uh, being born in the likeness of men. Verse eight, being found in human form. And that word for form is the same word for form of God, that morphe. So this is where we get confused. God or Jesus is 100% God, and he's also 100% man. Mm. He's both. It doesn't make scientific sense writing it down on paper. can't be 100% this and 100% this at the same time, I guess. But that's what, that's what Jesus was. And it might be above our level of comprehension just as humans, uh, but that's what Jesus was. Now he was. We we say all the time about how high and mighty our God is, and you can go back and read um, so many beautiful passages on God and how holy and high and mighty and all these things about God. This these are some of the things that Christ voluntarily. I really like this idea of he laid it aside. He just kind of laid it aside. I could, this is what I can do. I had the access to do all this thing, these things. And what that really illustrates to me is his um, meekness. You know, he's got all this power and all this ability to do stuff, but he chooses not to, he makes himself, you know, he keeps it under control and he makes himself a servant. When we know he should have been, he really was. In reality, he is the king above all else. But he lets, he allows himself to be lowered to the form of a servant. You yeah. know, even to the point of crucifixion and death. Let's let's try to put a finer point on it because the question that we're we're struggling to answer is what did he empty himself of? Okay, and it reminds me of his prayer in John seventeen. Listen, to what he. What he prays to the Father as he's preparing to die on the cross. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So I think John 17, 5 answers the question, what did he empty himself of? And it's an ambiguous term, but the the term is glory. Yeah. That's what he emptied himself of. He emptied himself of the glory of being a creature. Ooh, I almost said creature. That is not... (laughs) a, A being... Who lives in heaven, and you know, uh, I also think of Paul's phrase in First Timothy six sixteen: God who dwells in unapproachable light, unapproachable light. That's where Jesus dwelled in light, unapproachable, in glory of heaven. 
And he left that abode to live here, which is much different. That's what he emptied himself of, the glory. And now he's praying, you know, give it back to me. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Yeah. So, you know, I think that answers a lot of difficulties here. And yes, it's a vague term. Um, but when we're talking about heaven, I don't think human language can really put too fine of a point on it. You know, it's impossible for us to really explain what that is. Yeah, and I think when you think about what happened to Matthew 17 with them going up, you know, on the mountain and Jesus is transfigured, I think that's kind of looking to the glory that he had and what he's trying to get back. Because he says, exactly. um, you know, verse 2, he was transfigured, but this is Matthew 17, verse 2. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So I think this is really an idea. I mean, when you were saying that, this is what kind of started going through my head. Of You know, there's obviously something that's going on here that's not going on through the rest of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that, you know, his face is shining like the sun, his clothes become white as light, kind of like... You know, I guess Moses um, from the Old Testament, when he went up on the mountain, he came back down, his face was shining, he had to wear the veil. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's kind of that glory that Christ had to essentially lay aside, pick back up later, but lay aside in order for his sacrifice to mean what it meant. And when you start to really ponder on this and think about, what Christ left for us, mm-hmm. then I think your, you know, the meaning of Christ's sacrifice takes on a whole new level when you understand that's what He laid aside. And you know, it's here in just a couple sentences or one sentence really, but well, two. But you think about how well, low He it, humbled Himself. Yeah, and if you t- if you take that out, if you take it out, you take away. The distinction of the Christian faith. I mean, this goes back to the quote that you read a moment ago. If you change everything, if you change this idea that God died for us, there's an ancient um, caricature of Christianity, a cartoon or something, and that it's a picture of. Um, I forget what the picture is, but it's a picture of somebody bowing down to someone being crucified, and it says Alexamenos worships his God. And it's mocking Christians for the idea, which is inconceivable to the Greco-Roman mind, mocking Christians for worshiping a, a man who would die, who yeah. would be crucified. I mean, that, that was just God dying? You know, that just doesn't make any sense from a Greco-Roman point of view. Because their gods didn't love people. Yeah. Their gods didn't sacrifice themselves for people. Their gods abused people and raped people and you know, mocked people and played games with people and treated human beings as as, you know, inglorious, undignified just pawns for their enjoyment. Yeah. So uh now another, one question that we've gotta answer still, and I I I know we're going along here, but this is a very important thing to discuss. 
Okay, so he emptied himself. He changed. Yeah. He took on human form. That's new. Yeah. So he didn't he didn't lose his divinity, but he did something new did happen when he took on the morphe of anthropos. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's so almost... the question is when he ascended into heaven, did everything go back to the way it was before? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point you make, and I think you've done a class or a sermon or something on this before. I know I mean what I'm thinking of I got from something that you taught. But, you know, we teach that you know, or the the New Testament teaches really that the body is gonna be resurrected and you yeah. know, that heaven's not just a place for disembodied spirits. You know, yes, it's a place yeah. for bodies. And so I think the answer to this question is, you know, we say Christ God is now... God is spirit. Yeah. And we say that Christ is now seated at the right hand of God. You know, that's what we always say. Well, how is he seated there? Is it back to the way it was, you know, in John 1.1? 1, 1? Uh, yeah. You know, in the beginning there was the Word. Um, but then the Word becomes flesh. So I really think, you know, you look at Matthew 17 where he's transfigured. And then... Um, I think kind of that's the idea of the glory of what's going to come because the fact that Jesus' body is not here, where is it, you know? It's, it wasn't in the tomb. Right, yeah. Three days later, it wasn't in the tomb. Mm-hmm. Where did it go? Mm-hmm. You know, did did Jesus just make it disappear and then his spirit is somewhere else? Or did his yeah. body, you know, did his body go with him just like it teaches we are going to be resurrected. In Romans chapter 6, you know, it says we have, since we have been buried with him in a death like his, we have the hope of a resurrection like his. Yeah. First John 3, 2 says we shall be like him. Yeah. So here, here's another verse. First Timothy 2, 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And don't just think, oh, that was just Paul using the language. The word man is translated from anthropos, which is what we found in this uh, Philippians 2, mm-hmm. a form of human form. So the word anthropos is not just man like male, but man as in human being. Yeah. So Paul just did something here. He called Jesus a mediator. And he called Jesus now in heaven a human being. So mm-hmm. to put all of these passages together, and I'm glad you tied the resurrection into it. I didn't think about that for this present discussion. But to tie all of these things together, here's what we've arrived at. Jesus is God. Mm-hmm. He was God before he came to earth. Mm-hmm. When he came to earth, he remained God, but mm-hmm. he took on the form of a human he ascended into heaven, he neither lost the form of human or lost the form of God. He remains a, a person in the Godhead, the one God, but he is still human in a yeah. glorified state, which we can expect to be not equal to him, but we can expect to have glorified bodies as his body is, just as we had the body that he had when he was on earth. Yeah. Now there 
I realize our listeners are like, oh, wait a minute, you know, because I've got a bunch of questions about that too. Yeah. But that's the teaching of Scripture. Yeah. That, if you've got any it. questions or comments and you're listening, send them in. Any questions or comments on that, uh, let us know because there's so much to discuss here. We could do a whole, you know, we could do 10 episodes just on this. But, you know, in spite of all of these really, really interesting things to discuss about Christ and his deity and his um, humanity. The point here, Paul uses all these things to show that if you want to be humble, you need to have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself of the glory of God, you know, exactly how is what we've been talking about, but regardless of how, Christ emptied himself of that, went from the king of kings to a servant that allowed himself to be crucified on a cross. That's humility. That is God himself going down to the lowest rung that he can go to, from the very highest to the very lowest. You know, in our attempts, and we can get more into this and apply, but that just kind of shows you, you know, if Christ can be that humble, then surely to goodness... You can be humble enough to bite your tongue when somebody says something that makes you mad. Or surely to goodness, you can be humble when you don't want to go do this, but somebody does. Uh, you know, and there's a reason he talks about this with unity, and we'll get more of that in the apply section. But it's just kind of one of those things that just really makes, really, and it's the same way with forgiveness. It just makes you feel like your attempts at being humble is just a big joke. Because mm-hmm. Christ yeah, was God yeah. himself, mm-hmm. and then he let himself be crucified on a cross. Always, you look through the New Testament, always taking a back seat to other people, being humble, being meek, being lowly. We have a problem being meek and lowly today. People, well, you ain't going to pull that on me, or you ain't going to do that to me, or you know you know who you're talking to, or this, that, and the other. Yeah. And then, you know, how stupid do we look? In those yeah. times when we say that, or when we feel like somebody hurts our pride, we just look, there's no other word for it, we look silly. Mm-hmm. We look dumb when you compare that to what Christ did. That's what being humble really means. We can talk a little bit more of that and apply, but um, any other notes that you've got on anything else there? I know we kind of skipped around. No, and, I, I think I think we've, you know, we of course did not... Well, let's let's just take a break and then we can get the last thing. Yeah, we do some applications on the last. we can find some lessons that make this practical. This is heavy stuff, but I'm always amazed at how Paul can transition from heavy, deep, philosophical, theological truths into just everyday practical stuff. Right before he said all of these things about Jesus Christ, he said this in verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others 
uh, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I find in there, you know, he's talking about unity, and um, there, while most of the letter is positive, some say, you know, there was some problem with strife and division in the church of Philippi, and that's one of Paul's many reasons for writing this letter. The only negative reason, perhaps. And so uh, I find in these two verses three causes of division. If you look at okay. it very simply, the first one is rivalry, trying to compete with other people. You know, yeah. I'm better than you. I'm more, you know, smarter than you. All that. That that's one of them. Something I failed to mention in the last section. I should have. I'm glad you said that. Selfish ambition. Do nothing from selfish ambition. In verse three, is the exact same word that Paul uses about the guys that were preaching the gospel for uh, selfish gain. Yeah. In chapter one, verse seventeen. The former mm-hmm. proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, okay. but seeking to afflict me in my imprisonment. It's the same thing. Yeah. So, not to confuse people, but uh, it's been translated selfish ambition or rivalry. Yeah. It's the same thing. And then and then the second cause of division, also in verse 3, is conceit, is the way it's translated here, which I've seen it translated empty glory, which I like better, really, because it's, you know, getting puffed up over something that really doesn't matter. And we yeah. see a lot of examples of vain glory or empty glory in society today, that's another thing that'll divide people. You start puffing yourself up over worthless, vain, empty things. Yeah. The third cause is, um, you know, not well. Basically, thinking your your interests are more important than everybody else's. Mm-hmm. So not not considering other people's interests. So he says, uh, look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others. So we got to be concerned about other people. So when you put all those together, rivalry, conceit, and a lack of concern for others' interests, that's where division comes from. And, you know, that's really practical stuff. If everybody lived the way Paul is prescribing here, we wouldn't have any problems with unity and, and strife and those kinds of things. Yeah. Now, um, I also wanted to point out, and this helps us in the example that follows of Jesus Christ. That, well, first of all, I don't like the ESV's translation, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I really yeah. think that they should have left it alone. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Yeah. But the word mind there is attitude. In fact, we were talking during the break, mm-hmm. the New American Standard Bible translates that attitude. Let this attitude be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then that's why we get into this. He used to be in the form of God. He emptied himself. He became a human. Not only that, a servant. Not only that, he humbled himself. Not only that, but he humbled himself to death. Not only that, but he humbled himself to a death on the cross. Yeah, You can see this poetical structure there and why people think this is a poem or a hymn. Oh, yeah. It's all about his attitude. We're Mm -hmm. supposed to have that attitude. That's ex- I think that's the key to unity among Christians today. And I'm talking about not just within Church of Christ unity. Because, I mean, let's just call it what it is. In the Church of Christ, we've got division, you know. There are churches that split all the time. Churches have split uh, in the last ten years, you know. And growing up, you know, church is splitting was something I thought was a thing of the past. 
But, I mean, that's still around. You know, church is still split today. How do you solve that? How do you keep those people unified? How do you unify with the, what is it, 40,000? I just typed into Google when I was getting ready for this class last week. 40,000 so-called denominations of Christians. I mean... 40,000? Yeah, 40,000. I mean, how on earth, how do you begin to get some kind of unity? And this goes back to the very first thing we said in the read section. This is not... Being of the same mind does not mean do the exact same things, wear the exact same clothes, speak the exact same words. That's not what it means. That's really easy to do. You know, all of us can rehearse and do things really easy. All of us can come to church every time the doors are open and everything that kind of passes is superficial. You know, looking the same, being the same. That's easy. What is immensely harder is having the same attitude. Getting everybody coming from yeah. the same place. That's what Paul is trying to get us to do here. Have the attitude of Christ. If you want your congregation to be more unified, if you want to be more unified with people at other congregations that you don't really agree with everything they do, somebody you think is a little too liberal, somebody you think is a little too conservative, whatever it is, try having the attitude of Christ yourself first. You know, don't worry about what the other person's doing and everything. The first thing you need to evaluate is are you having the attitude of Christ? Are you counting someone else more significant than yourselves? Are you really coming from the same place that Christ himself was coming from? I want to show you this attitude in action. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and if you're riding down the road, I know you can't, uh, but what's going on in 1 Corinthians 8? Paul's talking about food being sacrificed to idols. And in the first verse of chapter 8, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And he's kind of probably being a little sarcastic here. All of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. That's, that's a, a very, I mean, that's a great, meaningful passage there. Uh, but what he's going on, he's going to say in verses 4 through 6 there, that it doesn't matter if you eat food sacrificed to an idol. What people thought at this time, some people thought that, well, that cow or that sheep or whatever it was, that cow was killed in an offering to Zeus. So, and I don't even know if they offer cows to Zeus. It's not important, though. It's just an example. <laughs> that cow was offered to Zeus. Now they're selling that cow in the market. Some people say, well, you can't eat that cow because it was offered and sacrificed mm-hmm. to Zeus. That is an affront to God. That is offensive. Paul says, look, we know that those gods aren't real. So those people might have sacrificed it thinking it was good, but there is no Zeus. So, it's, I mean, the cow, in reality, the cow was just killed in a weird way, but it's fine for you to eat that meat. There's nothing wrong with it. But, if you read in verse 7, not all of us possess this knowledge. Some, though former through the former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Then Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat it and no better off if we do. So Paul's saying this is not an issue. It doesn't matter if you eat the food or if you don't. Now here's what we do. In America, right now, it's this way with whatever someone is convicted of that this is the case. Maybe it's clapping. Maybe it's a praise team. Maybe it's a guitar. Maybe it's a fellowship hall. 
I don't know, whatever it is, but people are convinced, well, there's nothing wrong with me doing this. I'm going to do it anyway. You don't like it? Fine. We'll go down the road and we'll, we'll have our own church. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do this? We'll have our own church. And we're going to, because I know we can do this. That's what Paul would have done, right? Paul stood for the truth. And if this was something, well, look what Paul's attitude is. Down in verse 13, this sums it up. If food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul says, I know. And this, to me, really shows the attitude of Christ's humility. Because think about who Paul is. Paul is, at this time, the number one guy for spreading Christianity across the world. You know, Paul is an apostle. He has seen Christ himself. And Paul here is willing to submit to somebody that doesn't understand something as simple as that doesn't matter who that food is, you know, whether it's been offered or not or whatever. Paul is humble in that. I really think it shows his attitude. I'm not worried about, Paul's not worried about himself eating. He doesn't care. I'm not going to eat this meat if it makes my brother stumble. He is putting their needs Right. above his own in a he very leans, real way. He leans away from license to unity. Away yeah. from permission to unity. Yeah. If he had his choice, independence or unity, he would choose unity. Yes. Diff- you know, if he could only either have it his way or be with a group of people in harmony, he would rather be with a group of people in harmony. And you're right. I mean, that is an attitude we don't see a whole lot in the world, in the church, at work. I mean, you know, and it's it's an unchristian attitude to think I've got to have it my way. Yeah. Hey, let's um, look. You ready to move on to the next thing? Yeah, I guess. Not quite. I mean, I could I could talk about that for a long time because that's (laughs) something that. Just when you think about the humility of Christ, it drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm guilty tell of it, you're, too. You know, you're yeah. sweating a little bit. You're getting yeah. a little passionate about things here. I mean, it drives me crazy, when, and I do it myself. Well, so many, so many great myself, things have been but... ruined over the silly, you know, rivalry and conceit. Yeah. Rivalry, conceit, and not thinking about the other people's interests. If, Putting your interests over other people's interests. That's exactly right. And not having the attitude of Jesus Christ. It would and solve. How did Jesus? How in the world did he come down here and put up with us for three years? And yeah. you know, there were times where you know he'd get angry or he would sigh or you know. It's, yeah. It's amazing that that's all he did. Yeah. Like you said, he, he had the power of ten thousand angels or yeah, twelve legions it. of angels. I think it's actual scripture. Yeah. And why did he not destroy everybody? Yeah. You know, it's because he's God, and he has the nature of God. Hey, I, I wanted to end with this you know, last part of the hymn that we didn't really talk about, where God, after his death on the cross, therefore, you know, here's another yeah, mind-blowing another. concept. Yeah. He died on the cross, humiliating death. We didn't even talk about the humiliation the Romans put into crucifixion. It wasn't just torture. It was humiliation. Yeah. So, because, therefore, based on the humiliating death of the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue confess Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. This is a passage that brings me comfort sometimes when dealing with unbelievers and hearing just hateful people towards Christian faith, um, people who, you know, really say horrible things about us and try to tear down faith in Jesus Christ. I know that one day they will believe as well. According to this passage of Scripture, one day they will confess the name of Jesus Christ. And it's sad that they won't do it on this side of eternity. But eventually, everyone is going to be saying the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus, that He is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And, you know, it'll be... It's... Maybe a small consolation. Yeah. But it helps me to know that I'm not crazy. I'm not a madman. I'm not insane for believing this. That this this is right. And it's just right now, not everybody's doing it. One day, everybody will. Yeah. I, so I, There's so much in those last few verses. We don't have time to really dive into it as much as we would like to but certainly that and I'll one last thing I want to say I probably shouldn't because we might get us down another road but I really think that this is another you know this is an example of so many things perfect example of of Proverbs 3.34 quoted in James chapter 4 and verse 6 God opposes the proud gives grace to the humble uh, you look in verse 10, humble yourselves, and James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Mm-hmm. You know, Christ humbled himself as low as he could humble himself. And in turn, yeah. God exalted him as high as he could possibly exalt him. There's no mm-hmm. nowhere else for Jesus to go that could be higher or better than what he has now. It's not, I mean, it's not possible. And he's so, you know, he's to the point of one day everybody is going to praise his name. Everybody's going to confess. Everybody's going to bow down to him. That's You can't get any higher than that. You know? And I think it's interesting. He lowered himself as low as he could go, and so God raised him up as high as he could go. Yeah. Uh, These are wonderful thoughts. I mean, this is one of the most helpful and instructive set of verses in the entire Bible. That's all the time there is. We could talk more, but that's all the time we've got. Like we have said, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can email us at akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. Our Twitter handle is the66podcast. Check us out on the web at d66.net and uh, let us know what you think. Uh, keep tuning in we love uh, to hear that people are listening and learning next week we're going to continue Philippians chapter 2